0: Um, earlier today um, that we're we're grateful for uh, you being here. We're grateful for what God's doing in the midst, and I'm excited about this series. This series is uh, really kind of us taking the month of June to look in and to press into traits that make our lives better and that kind of are the defining characteristics of of the life that God calls us to live, and if you're new to Encounter Church, this is not an odd thing. One of the things that we do, um, we, we just believe it with the patterns and rhythms of life, it's far simpler. If each month we just take an idea that the Bible directly addresses and we spend the course of a month having a conversation around that from what the Bible says about our lives, that um, while um, it would be very easy to say, well, let's just preach the Bible. If you flip through it, it's huge. And and I'm not into throwing darts at the board and hoping I'm going to hit something. And while I understand that many of us come from different traditions where we've just kind of Maybe you have an underlying calendar that you read from. For us, what we found just in life that let's deal with the issues that we're dealing with and let's look at what the Bible says about it. And so each month we take that idea, we take a struggle, we take a concept, or we take something maybe that's even aspirational, something we believe God desires to foster in our lives, and let's take a month and work through it. And um, and so that's why we do series. That's why you'll hear us say, hey, we're in the middle of this series right now, um, because uh, as a church, we want to press into the things that's pressing into our lives because we believe that God is for us and with us and in us in our life and in our struggle. And so why not? Let's model that in even how we speak and teach weekly. Um, and so just want to kind of give you that if you're new, just why we're doing what we're doing because uh, in the month of June, we want to press into these things that we all intrinsically know or seen in the passage of scripture or seen modeled in others that that's something I wish I had more of in my life. If you've ever seen a character trait, if you've ever seen one of those things, you're like, I wish I was more like that. That's kind of what this series is about. Um, This past week, I even had one of those moments where watching the news, and there's a story of a 61-year-old, William Durden, grouper season has just started, and he takes his 22-foot Grady White out into the Gulf of Mexico because it's the first day of fishing season. He's like, I'm going to be on it. And as he presses out, he's He has his uh, two lines that are trawling behind his boat as he's pressing through the Gulf of Mexico, and he notices there's a jolt to the boat, and he's like, I've got something. He's got this new rod uh, with this new line that's not going to break, like it's guaranteed it's going to hold no matter what, and he notices that this brand new rod is starting to jiggle in its handle and in its mount, and he's like, I'm not about to lose my brand new rod, and so he runs in, he grabs hold of it in both hands, and he locks in, and the next thing you know, he's flying through the air. And he lands in the water, and when he hits, the rod is gone, and it's whatever had it has gone with it. And he's sitting there, and he turns around, and he spins around, and his boat is still heading away from him. And, um, and that sets him up for this ordeal that for the next 20 hours, he literally treads water. That He gets to the end of the day, and he's like, okay, um, they're probably not going to find me tonight, so I've got to make it through the night. And through the course of the evening, he starts to fight off hypothermia. At one point, uh, what's called a shark sucker attaches to his leg and begins to just kind of work its way down because that's what shark suckers do. And, um, and so he feels fish bumping up against him. At any point, he's concerned it may be a shark bumping up against him. He sees the sunrise start to come over the horizon. He's like, okay, I- I'm going to make it today. He sees a boat pass by. He screams and yells. The boat doesn't see him. At this point, the 22-foot-long Grady White has run ashore, and they find it, and they use the GPS and say, we found this path. And so the Coast Guard sends out a chopper to start following it. And after about two to three hours, they see his body with a yellow shirt kind of still treading water in the Gulf of Mexico. And this 61-year-old man treads water for 20 hours straight. Without a life jacket. And he gets picked up, and there's hardly any bruises or cuts. He has a couple of abrasions where some things have bumped up against him. But all in all, he's not even dehydrated. He's treaded water. And I read that story, and I'm like, when I am 61 years old, I want to be that guy, right? Because if I was being honest, if I were to picture me flying off the boat today, I think I got like 20 minutes to two hours in me before I start to question whether it's worth it, right? I'm like, this is not worth it. I am tired. I mean, but here's a guy who lasts for 20 hours, and what he demonstrates is this grit, this determination, this like, man, this gutsy press through, like, I'm going to live no matter what. Have you ever seen the movie Unbroken? You kind of see that same spirit, right? I will not give up no matter what. And, and this idea of grit has kind of become a popular research topic recently because what, what researchers have started to figure out, that it's not IQ, it's not your college, it's not your pedigree, it's not even necessarily your g- g- genetics. It's that the single determinant factor, the single greatest determinant factor of success in life is grit. That grit separates West Point candidates that have the exact same SAT scores and IQ scores. That it separates those people who make it further. It it separates those people who have great marriages. That grit sets apart the great. And it's really easy in the midst of all the research about grit to kind of sit back and to do what I did when I saw that story to say, you know what, there is no way, good for that 61-year-old man, but there is no way I could ever tread water for 21 hours. I, I can't do that. That's beyond what I could pull off. I'm just not that gritty. But fortunately for us, this idea of grit is not a new thing. It's it's not some. While sociologists and psychologists have recently kind of uncovered it as this like primary place of research, this is something that's been part of God's story with humanity for a long time now. That grit is one of those things that you see in the Old and in the New Testament. The whole storyline of what is known as Christianity. Um, you see unpacked in that a call to God from His to his people to, to develop grittiness in their life, to foster perseverance, and to have this character trait about them that makes and enables them to stand out. That God, throughout the scriptures, is not calling people to flashy starts, but really to faithful finishes. And the key to faithful finishes is grittiness. And fortunately for us, what I want to do today is not talk about gritty to compel you into why grittiness is a great idea. Because I think, quite honestly, all of us would l- agree with that. We, If you have children, you probably want to see it developed in your children. If you're married, you probably want to see your spouse develop it, right? I mean, grittiness is something that we all intrinsically recognize is a valuable character trait. And for us, what we find in a letter written to a church shortly after um, the birth of Christianity is Not just a why to, but a how to for developing grit. And this morning, I want to give you two distinct kind of practices, two uh, intentional kind of rhythms that you and I can do in our lives to foster and to develop grit. Because grit is not just something that we can admire from a distance. It's something that we can foster internally, daily, into our lives. If you have the Encounter Church app, I would encourage you to go ahead and um, click on it. In um, the sermon notes will actually be the passages that I'm going to use today. Um, it's the book of Hebrews is what the specific letter is called. And we're going to be in chapter 12 and just three verses. And I want to kind of give you the bigger backdrop to this passage before we dive into it, because in the midst of this three verses is a lot of backstory that helps you understand why the, the writer of the letter of Hebrews turns to this conversation about fostering grit, that... The book of Hebrews is written to a people who had started off really strong. Christianity, Jesus has been crucified on the cross, and then he's placed in the grave, and he comes back to life. And now there's this there's supernatural things happening, and it's all in the name of Jesus, and people are starting to be attracted, and not just attracted to this early thing called Christianity, but people's lives are starting to be transformed. And it's starting to spread. It's going beyond this little small city in the Middle East known as Jerusalem. It's starting to creep into the Roman Empire as a whole. And it's expanding. And there are some key leaders who are kind of helping to push this out into deeper and broader places. And in the midst of that, there are a group of individuals in a location whose lives they experience the power of Christianity. They experience the hope that Jesus brings. And their life is different. They become Christians. They start to follow Jesus and His teachings. But in the midst of doing so, they're doing it in a time period where Christianity is still illegal. It's illegal to practice this thing called Christianity. And not only is it illegal, but to the Jews, they see it as a form of blasphemy. This is literally saying that Jesus is God, which is a tenet of Christianity, that Jesus, in fact, is God in flesh. And they're saying, whoa, we're not comfortable with Jesus being God. And so for the Jews, there's animosity towards these Christians to the point that there's stonings, there's there's assassination attempts, there's oppression, people who become Christians who were Jews um, who were working in a job have trouble getting promotions or they're losing their jobs or their kids are being persecuted. And all of a sudden, this group that started off really strong, really vibrant about their faith is now not sure this is really worth it. And we've all probably been there in some way, shape or form, right? Where I want to start exercising, or I want to start learning to play the guitar. Or I want to pick up a new hobby. I want to start building. Right? And, we, and we kind of foster these new like habits in our life. And then we get to a part where it's like, this is hard. I'm not sure I want to do this anymore. And that's where these people are. They've been following Jesus, and they're not sure they want to keep doing it. And the writer writes this letter that we now call the book of Hebrews, and he sends it to them, and he unpacks for the first ten Ten chapters of the book of Hebrews, he's simply making the argument why Jesus is better than everything else. While well, Jesus is why Jesus is better than the old Jewish system they used to have. Why Jesus is better because he gives hope and forgiveness of sins. He's just walking through the storyline. Why Jesus is greater than any other thing. That he's worth the suffering. And this compelling like theological, practical belief kind of unpacking. This is why he's worth it for the first ten chapters. And a warning, don't turn aback. Don't turn away. And then chapter 11, right before this chapter, he lists all the people throughout history who've demonstrated faithfulness, that that you can finish strong and you can remain faithful even in the midst of pressure and opposition and persecution. And all of that leads up to chapter 12, where we're going to read from today. Because while all of that sounds good and all of that sounds right, he recognizes that unless they fight, they won't finish strong. And so he says in verse, 12, uh, verse 1 of chapter 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, pointing back to chapter 11, all of those people who have done it faithfully, all those people who, even in the midst of really difficult pressure, stayed faithful to God. He's like, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance to raise marked out for us. So I want you to stop there. So not only has he unpacked this per- compelling picture theologically to this group of why jesus is better and why they should stay faithful he then takes this common imagery of the day right where you see let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us he actually is using an imagery in the next couple of verses that was something very common to the to their day Um, that in the ancient roman structure races were a big deal I mean, these are the people who helped to invent the Greek culture that the Romans conquered, helped to to birth the Olympics, the modern idea of the race, the marathon. So racing was core to to this culture that he's writing this letter to. And the way that they would typically race um, this distance is they would start and they would begin to run and they usually were wearing absolutely nothing while they ran because there was a competitive edge to it. And then they would run into this, the final stadia, which is where we get our word stadium. And they would run into this stadium, and that's how they would finish the race. So he's, he's kind of pulling off a very popular sports illustration of the day to frame the how to develop grit. And so he, he continues. He says, look, we need to foster this perseverance. He says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart so he uses this modern race analogy to really motivate these people who needed more grit and then in three verses he gives us the how and the first thing you notice is this idea of perseverance specifically right before he says perseverance he's been explaining a little bit of what he means he says let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles He starts with this idea, if we're going to foster grit in our life, we have to foster the perseverance, which means removing the things that can slow us down. He's like, the runners in those days ran with no clothes. They did not have the benefit of Athletica or Luluman or New Balance, right? They didn't have Nike, who was designing apparel for the athlete in mind. It's really hard to sprint wearing a huge, massive robe, right? I mean, or to wear sandals. And so these people would bring such a level of competition. They're like, you know what? I run faster when I don't have the robe on. And you know what that means. And so people would literally gather around, and the competitors were naked, running with everything they have. Like, I'm grateful for Nike and New Balance, right? I I just want to, can I just say that? I'm grateful. But in this day, people ran removing anything that could slow them down. And the writer uses that analogy to unpack that. Look, there are things that can hinder us that's going to hold you back from fostering grit and you have to get rid of them. And and notice he actually uses two different things. He talks about the weights, those things that can hinder us, everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles. He actually points to two different types of hindrances, one is just amoral. It's just any kind of habit that's distractional. Anything that distracts you from the core mission, get rid of it. And then he says any habit that's sinful, anything that is destructive, anything outside of what God intended for our flourishing, remove it. Because it's holding you back. Where the, everything that hinders may slow you down, the sinful habits that entangle can literally stop you in your tracks. He's like you've got to be mindful of those distractional and destructive habits and ways of thinking that can hold you back. That it's easy on the surface when you first hear that to say, "Well, I that part of the fostering grit is just removing certain things," but it's it's about intentionally carving out and removing all the things in life that slow you down. There's this intentionality behind it that. Um, I was watching the movie 33 in the last, uh, probably the last couple months, and it's about the storyline of the Chilean miners. So in 2010, we're going in the San Jose mine, and this mine's over 100 years old, but had been neglected for decades out of trying to save money. And these 33 miners, as they're traveling down and hit around 2,000 feet, the mountain starts to shift because of the mining practices. And they end up pressing down to 2,300 feet underground. 90 degrees. And they're trapped. And they run to the escape hatch and realize that the ladders were never completed. They go to open up the food containers that's meant to help them survive, and they find there's only three days worth of food and water there. And they do the quick math on the back of the envelope, and they realize there's no way, no no one can get to us In three days, and what they do, I think it carries the spirit of what the writer is calling us to do: removing things. They said, "Okay, one of the barriers that's going that we clearly have in front of us is that we've got to survive, and this food thing is an, is an issue because it's going to take a month, if not months, for them to get to us if they even come at all." And so they take three days worth of food and they begin to ration three days of food and water. In little, tiny slices. Barely enough to keep them alive. And they survive for 69 days underground while an international rescue attempt is mounted above ground. That this tenacity to say, I'm going to remove all the barriers to me finishing strong. And even if that means cutting out some things in my life. I mean, the Olympics, every... Every year, like every year that the Olympics happens, so we're in that year now, and we get closer, you start to hear about the stories of determination and perseverance, right? That you don't make it to the Olympic level without orienting your entire life and removing anything in your life that can prevent you from getting that win. You know, you hear about the Olympic swimmers and divers, just the whole, like the whole, unpack it all, and what you find is these people who are like, no, I don't eat these foods, and I, well, I don't actually do this, and I don't choose to do these activities because I make sure I'm in bed every, every night at 8 p.m. so that I can get up for my 4 a.m. training regimen. It's like their entire life is wrapped around removing things that can hold them back. And while we may not be Olympic athletes, I think the application is very similar to us. There, there are in our relationships with our spouse or with our kids, there are destructive habits and there are distractional things that creep in that prevent us from having those kind of relationships. That if you want to finish well with your kids, if you want to finish strong with your spouse, those destructive habits, like always assuming the worst when they say something, can stop your relationship. Or that tendency to not pay attention when they're talking can start to erode the strength of your relationship. That those mindsets that we can have internally, because people who run, they they tell me this. I don't know if I believe them. But they say, well, once you get to a certain point, it's no longer physical. It's all mental. I haven't reached that point yet. I hear that that point is real. And I trust these people, so I assume it's right. But what they're speaking to is the reality of that sometimes it's not even physically what's in our life. It's it's how we think about those things in our life that can distract us or can be destructive and eroding relationships that it can be something as simple as those little tiny distractional habits about the number of people and the millions upon hours that are wasted in corporations all around America due to social media while people are at work. That's a distractional habit. And I maybe I offended you, I don't know. But like that, that erodes and that slows you down. Because your productivity is being hindered in your workplace. Because you've been distracted. And that's what he's saying. He's like, look, these tiny distractions, those things over time, they slow you down. And they remove you from being as competitive as you should be. And that if you want to achieve greatness, if you want to foster this trait in your life that's significant, then it comes through you fostering grit. And the way that we foster grit is by removing things. So two questions, it's a rhyme, but it, it just helps me. It's like, will this help me win?" Like, will, will this, whatever this is, will it help me win? In my relationships, in my workplace, in my personal life, in my personal health, is what I'm doing right now, will this help me accomplish the win that I want in life? Because if it won't, it's, if, if it's not going to help you, then you need to remove it. There are certain relationships, right, that we've all been in before where we know and that friendship or even maybe if you've been dating someone before in this place, and you recognize that if you've, you've got this very increasing kind of two-path happening in front of you, you know this is the type of person you want to be, and yet you recognize the longer you stay with them, the less likely you're going to become that person. And to, to be willing to cut those ties to say, no, this is, what, this is the win I want in my life. I mean... We've all had those places and tension in life and recognize that if we don't choose to remove the things that can slow us down or stop us, what will end up happening is eventually we will run out of steam before we make it to the finish line. And not only is it going to help me win, but sometimes is this a sin? You know what? If, if I'm constantly lying to my spouse or constantly clicking on websites that's pulling me away from my affection to him or her, then this sin is destroying our relationship. If you've ever had your child look at you in your face and say, nope, I didn't do it. And you know that they did it. That destroys the trust in your relationship. And that's kind of the heartbeat. I know that the word sin can be kind of theologically loaded for many of us and that we have different kind of maybe scopes around that. But at the end of the day, it's like, We may not like to use the the word, but we all would agree on the basic definition that sin is anything that we've done that we wish we had never done. Sin is things that have been done to us by others that we wish we had never done. And sin are those things, those thoughts, those patterns, and those those practices in our life that internally we know we shouldn't do them because they remove us from what God intends for us to do. And this idea that, Maybe there are certain habits in your relationships right now that are literally killing it if you continue that to, to say, you know what, I need to, to remove some things if we're going to finish strong, if I'm going to advance in my workplace. But it's not just about removing. That's the other dynamic of grit, this other practice, is he then says, fix your eyes on Jesus right? Which sounds really profoundly spiritual. But the undercurrent of this passage is, remember, a race. Because the typical race would start, they would, they would start at this indeterminate distance outside of the stadium, and they would begin to run. And as they neared the stadium, they would turn into it. And the stadia is about 6,000, um, is about 600 feet long. And they would turn in and they would go into it. And what you would find is you would have on this side and this side, you would have uh, like the, the stands and people would be sitting there cheering you on. And you were running. Typically, you would have the competitors running beside you. But what was unique about the Roman Greek race structure was that the finish line was not a place. It was a face. Because at the very end of the stadium would sit this, this row with a Roman official, typically the governor of the district, or if it was a significant race, maybe even Caesar himself would be sitting at the very end of the stadium. And his face, he was the finish line. And what would happen is that the runners would come in and they would fix their eyes on him. And they would run towards him. They weren't even fixated on the crowds. They weren't fixated on the people beside them. Their focus was on the finish line face. And the writer pulls that imagery and says, Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's like, I know right now you're in the midst of difficult circumstances and it's really heavy and it's really hard. And if you fix your eyes or focus your mind on the way your legs hurt, the way your lungs hurt, you will not finish this race and win. You fix your eyes on the finish line and when you cross that face, then you collapse. He's calling up this other essential element to developing grit. He's calling up passion. He's focusing them on the passion of why they do what they do. And for the Christian receiving this letter, the passion they had was motivated in the passion. Remember, he says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy sat before him, sat before him, endured the cross. Here's what's really cool. The word race, um, the, the Greeks called race agonia, which is where we get our word for agony, which is Fitting. Right. And so this idea of the race, of this struggle, of this fight, of this agony, he says, look what Jesus agonized for you. He endured the most brutal corporal punishment ever, capital punishment ever. And he did it for you. And his example should motivate you and your like his capital A agony should motivate you in your lowercase, agony. And this is what he's calling them to. That it's his example. The word passion, actually, is a beautiful word. We use passion for a lot of different things. Right? Oh, crocheting, that's my passion. Right? But when you talk about passion, the literal word for passion comes from the word to suffer. When you say you're passionate about something, What you're literally saying in its root is that I love this so much I'm willing to suffer for it. That's what passion genuinely is. It's not the flooding of chemicals because of him or her. It's this powerful commitment that says I will suffer because of my love for it or them. And... And he's calling out not just perseverance of removing those things, but of passion of fixing and focusing our eyes on the face for why we do this whole race in the first place. And that's what he's calling them to. It kind of reminds me um, of the parable of the bricklayer, where the guy's walking down the street and he walks up and there's this guy kind of just slowly putting the brick one at a time. It just seems to his face is down not doesn't even look like a really good wall and guy walks up and he says what are you doing and the guy says i'm a bricklayer okay you're a bricklayer all right and he walks up keeps going down the street and he gets to another section of the wall and there's a guy who's a little bit faster his wall is a little bit better and he seems to be working with a little bit more of a quicker pace he says hey what are you doing and the guy says i'm feeding my family and he keeps walking. He gets to the end of the wall and he notices how perfectly straight it is and how as, the, as it comes up, it's like this perfect 90 degree turn for this corner. And, and this wall, it's, it's, it, it looks different. He says, hey, what are you doing? Because this guy's got this passion and this focus. He says, I'm, I'm building a cathedral where all the surrounding towns will come and worship a God who loves them deeply. It's the same action, but what you see in each one of those individuals is the power of passion. One's just doing a job. The other one is taking care of his family. But the third, the third sees the bigger picture overall and says, no, that's why the excellence is there, because I'm doing this for someone. I'm doing this for a reason. Because passion elevates you. When you're passionate about something, you will suffer I mean, that undergirds what you do. And passion is one of those things that, quite honestly, many of us, we lack it in our lives for certain things. We can kind of feel like we're just drifting. And in the fall, we're going to spend an entire month just kind of processing this idea of passion and purpose. And, like, what have I been made for? Because do you know that you were an idea from God? He thought you up, you were made on purpose. And we're going to spend one of later in the fall, we're going to spend an entire month unpacking that and working through what does it mean to be made for a purpose and to have a reason for existing that goes beyond level one or even level two, but to to use your life to build what your life was meant to build. Because passion is meant to fuel us, and it's one of those key components of being gritty, and ultimately, for the Christian, the, the strength and source of our passion is Him and what He's done for us and the way He's demonstrated His love for us and that the way that in spite of who we are, He said, I love you and I will die for you. And, and I recognize that we have so many different types of people here every single Sunday. And you say, okay, like I'm, I'm down with developing grit, but you know what? This is the disconnect for me because I'm not really sure I even believe in Jesus. So I can't fix my eyes on a face I don't even believe in. So I'm going to disconnect here. And, and I would encourage you, there's a principle happening here that I want to press into with you. That even if you don't believe it, that what he's doing is giving you a clear insight to how to foster grit in your life. Maybe you don't believe that you will one day see the face of Jesus. But there will one day be a face in the mirror reflected back at you when you're older, and you want to make sure that that face reflected back at you is not filled with regret and agony over things that you quit too early in life, that you don't want to get way past this season and have checked out and then later on in life look back and say, you know what? It really wasn't that hard. I wish I'd never given up. Because when you walk away from something, sometimes you can't walk back to it because it's gone. And so even if you don't buy into the whole Jesus thing, the principle is still there that you're running for a face and you may not be running for the face of Jesus, but you should at least be running for your own face in the future, looking back at you in the mirror. And to make sure that you're living your life in a way that when you tell your story or when you remember your story that you don't regret those moments you checked out and that you push through the agony. And let me give you something that's really helpful for whoever you are and whatever spectrum you are. And this is something that that we practice even as a family. It's a little helpful application out of this. We, um, I I typically do this in full disclosure every time I run. Um, About five minutes into the run, the idea of being healthy has been replaced by the idea of I hate this. Okay, I'm just being honest with you. Um, and it's normally at that point that every part of my body starts to say, what were you thinking? The couch was really comfortable. And, um, I start to kind of feel my heart rate going really high and I start, and I got cars riding by and I'm like, I, people are going to be dialing 911 cause I'm pouring sweat. I'm like, you know, they're like, I think there's a guy having a heart attack on the side of uh, East street. Can you, uh, can you bring somebody out? Like, I know that's happening. And so what I have to do this, because everything in me is like, stop horrible idea, is that I have to do what's called the 20-20-20. I'll, 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 while in the midst of running, pouring sweat, not sure why I'm doing this, I'll think, in 20 minutes, how will I feel and think about what my choice is right now? Okay, in 20 minutes, I'll be finished with this run, and I'll be glad I did it. I'll just want to die. Okay, 20 months from now. Well, if I do this enough regularly for 20 months, in 20 months, I'll look good. I like that. My girl would be like, that's my man. Look at them muscles. I'd be like, I like that. Keep pressing. And then 20 years from now, i am be like, you know, all the things that I, I really want to be doing in my life, I'll be able to do them so much better and be in a better place of health in 20 years from now if I keep doing what I'm doing. And that may sound trivial and trite, but that's what this writer's calling you to do. It's like By focusing your eyes on the face, you pull out of the immediate and you can do the 20-20-20. You, you can say... Our family has, has had to make tough decisions before and what has elevated us beyond and allowed us to be gritty in those moments was this idea of 202020. 20 Like, okay, in 20 minutes, I'm still not going to like where we are. In 20 months, this will be a painful mem- memory. In 20 years, it'll be a scar that I no longer feel the pain and it'll be a powerful story about why being faithful is more important than being fickle. And I've had to do that. And You and I have to do that if we want to foster grittiness in our lives. And the last thing I just love about it is the perseverance and passion components, they're essential if we're going to foster grit in our life. But the writer in verse 3, when he says consider Him, the very nature of calling us to consider Him who endured such pain, the whole implicit nature to this text in the first place is that grit can be developed in our life. That's why there is a call to how to do it. Because it's really easy to sit in our seats right now in the midst of whatever we find ourselves in and think, those people are just tougher than I am. I don't have what it takes. And to say, you know what, maybe you don't have what it takes right now. But grit can be fostered in your life. That maybe you don't have the energy to press through. Maybe you're not sure if you can stay in this marriage because you're not sure how you're going to keep in it. You're not sure how you're going to make it through this season of life because, oh my goodness, if my child says, can we watch Frozen one more time, let it go, ain't going to be the only thing happening, right? I mean, there are moments where you're not sure in this season, can I keep pressing through? But to know that you can foster grit, that you can develop grit, is hugely encouraging to us. Because it means that no matter where you are, you don't have to stay there. It means that the greatest enemy to our co- and growing in our own capacity, which is oftentimes our love of comfort, doesn't have to keep holding us back, that we can press through it. If you've ever worked out at a gym, you've, you've seen this physically in action. It is your weakest point in your workout that is actually the very source of your greatest strength. It's when your arms are burning and you don't think you can lift that barbell anymore and you get it up that last time. And the next day, your muscles are in pain and you feel like you were beaten while you slept. But then you go back in the gym, pick up that barbell, and it goes up a whole lot easier. And in the midst of that weakest moment, what happened is because you pressed through that weakest moment, you became stronger on the other side. And what's true about the physical realm is true about the character and spiritual realm too. That if we're willing to press through those hard moments, if we're willing to stay in in those toughest places, that what we can find is on the other side, we can become stronger in the other. Because grit can be developed and it can be fostered. And whether you believe in the face that we will one day see or whether it's just your face reflecting back that if we're willing to remove the things in our lives that are holding us back and to be intentional about focusing on those things in our lives that call us to a greater place and purpose, that we can find that no matter what you're in right now, no matter how hard it is right now, one day it'll be your warm-up and you'll be able to work through it, and you're like, I got this. It used to be hard, but I got it now because I'm stronger. I'm grittier because I heard the call of God saying, you can do it. You have what it